But Y is supported by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings may vary. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids from Vermont Public Radio. I'm Jane Lindholm. Every episode, we take fabulous questions from you, and we find people to help answer them. Or sometimes we take a crack at answering them ourselves. I'll tell you how you can send your question in at the end of the episode. Okay, we've set a goal for ourselves today. We're going to answer 10 questions as fast as we can. I'm going to set my stopwatch for 20 minutes. Do you think I can do it? Good. Let's get started. Our first question actually comes from four different curious kids, but we're going to count it as just one question. My name is Violet, and I am six years old. I live in Garnet Valley, Pennsylvania, and my question is, why do onions make you cry? Hello, my name is Olive, and I live in Madison, North Carolina. I'm eight years old, and my question is, how do onions make you cry? Hi, my name is Olivia. I live in Canton, New York. I'm nine years old, and my question is, why do people's eyes water when they cut onions? My name is Benny, and I'm four years old. I live in West Berlin, Vermont. Why do onions burn your eyes? For an answer, we turn to Dr. Lori Raisha. She answered all your questions in our two episodes about bodies. Your eye produces something called reflex tears when it's exposed to something it considers noxious, so something irritating or um, not feeling good for the eye. And with onions, it's actually a chemical that comes off. I think it's a sulfur dioxide. Actually, it's a mix of sulfur chemicals, which become a gas. That goes to the eye, and it doesn't feel good. And so the eye is trying to lubricate itself and wash it away, and those are called reflex tears. When you are cutting onions, there's a couple things you you can do. You can put the onion in the refrigerator so that it kind of stabilizes that compound that causes the chemical reaction. Or you can do what I do, which is wear swim goggles. My kids think it's very funny because I have these pink swim goggles on when I'm chopping onions, but it works great because it's keeping that chemical from getting to my eyes. Swim goggles for the win. Okay, on to question two. My name's Dia. I live in Arizona, Phoenix, and I'm five years old. And my question is, why do hummingbirds hum? Believe it or not, hummingbirds don't hum. Well, at least not the way you and I do. What you hear when a hummingbird flies by you is the flapping of its wings. When they're flying, hummingbirds flap their wings about 50 times every second. That's on average. Some beat their wings even faster, and some do flap a little slower. When they sing or chirp, they actually sound like this. Not that impressive a song for a bird that's so exciting to see. Hummingbirds can fly up, down, backwards, even upside down in some cases. 
They're very small birds. Even the giant hummingbird is only about the size of a starling or a cardinal. And the bee hummingbird is not much bigger than its namesake, a bee. One time, I had to rescue a hummingbird that got caught in my garage. And when I held it, I was surprised. It was so light, it almost didn't feel like I was holding anything. Go grab a U.S. nickel, and you've got the weight of a ruby-throated hummingbird in the palm of your hand. Hummingbirds only live in North and South America, so if you live somewhere else and have never seen one, have an adult help you find a video. There are some great videos about hummingbirds. And thanks very much to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for those great hummingbird sounds. Next up, a question about a much larger bird. My name is Anna Marie. I am six years old. I live in Bozeman, Montana. My name is Xander. I'm 10 years old and I live in Plymouth, New Hampshire. My question is, my question is, why do flamingos stand on one leg? Why do flamingos stand on one leg? Our answer comes from Paul Rose. He works at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust at Slimbridge in the United Kingdom. This is a question that has baffled scientists for a number of years, but I thought I would have a go at giving it an answer. So the most accepted reason is that when the bird stands on one leg, this helps it save energy. It enables them to perform some of their less active behaviours without the need to keep balancing themselves by using their muscles. And if you balance without using your muscles, you actually don't expend any energy whatsoever in keeping still. Wait a minute. Did Paul say that the flamingos don't have to expend energy when they're balancing on one leg? Let me try this here in the studio. Okay, I'm standing on one leg. Whoa. This is not the most relaxing thing. I'm taking more energy to stand on one leg than I would if I were standing on two. But it's not that way for a flamingo. The way their bodies are designed, it's actually easy for them to balance on one leg. So they don't wobble like I do. And Paul says flamingos spend a lot of time resting like this. The scientific term is actually called loafing, so they can save up energy for feeding or taking care of their babies. But Paul says there's another theory for why flamingos like to stand on one leg, and that is that when they're standing in cold water, they lift their legs up to keep one leg warm. It keeps their body a little bit warmer than if both legs were in the water. And he says flamingos are unique in lots of ways, but standing on one leg isn't one of those ways. Lots of birds stand on one leg. We just notice it more with flamingos because they're so big and <laughs> so pink. What is unique about flamingos is their incredible pink color. And this comes from the food that they eat. We often think of flamingos as being a tropical bird. They are not just found in the tropics. Actually, they are very hardy birds and they can be found in very, very cold, very, very harsh environments. So where I am speaking to you from in the United Kingdom, the closest wild flock of flamingos to me is just over the English Channel in France, in a wetland in the south of France. But what brings all of the species of flamingo together is this uh, need to feed on foods that turn them pink. Tiny algae, tiny crustaceans, things like shrimps and prawns that they will consume to make their feathers those beautiful bright colours. And Paul has one more cool fact about flamingos. Flamingos can live for an extraordinarily long time. 
And the oldest documented flamingo was a bird that lived in a zoo in Australia and it died just after its 83rd birthday. That is very, very unusual and it just shows how wonderfully adapted they are to their environment. Thanks for all that fascinating information about flamingos, Paul. Question number four is also about something that flies. Hello, my name is Peter. I live in England. I'm seven years old. And my question is, do moths have veins in their wings? We tossed that question over to Kent McFarland at the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. He helped us out in our summer fun show two episodes back. Hi, Peter. Moths do indeed have veins in their wings. And if you look closely at a moth or even a butterfly, you can see that network of veins between these two thin layers of the wing, sort of like the wing's skin, that's made out of chitin. It's the same hard stuff that makes up the outside of their body. They're also covered with thousands of tiny scales that lend the color to their wings. The wings are strengthened by the system of tubular veins, which kind of radiate outward from the base of the wing. Also, when the moth breaks free from its cocoon, its wings are all folded and curled up. Liquid flows into those wing veins to help expand their wings until the wings dry and they're ready to fly. The other cool thing is, is that body fluids can be pushed into the wing veins to help cool them down on a hot day or warm them up on a cold night, sort of like the radiator in your car. Question 5. My name is Noah and I'm 6. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. And, and, and my question is, do cats, when they live in the same houses, do they have the same meow? Noah was inspired to ask that question after hearing our episode all about cats. In that episode, our feline expert, Abigail Tucker, explained that cats develop a language all their own with their individual human family. And Noah wondered if the same thing happened among the cats themselves. We go back to the United Kingdom for this answer to check in with someone who has studied cat language and communication. Hello, my name is Sarah Ellis and I work for the charity International Cat Care. Really interesting question. We don't know for definite the answer because that research hasn't specifically been done, but early pilot data suggests to us that probably not. Each cat is an individual and even though they may share the same owner, uh, they may not meow in the same way. It is possible that owners can reinforce different cats living in their households in different ways, and that can lead to them meowing in different ways. So how you treat your cats differently might have some influence on how they talk to you. Sarah Ellis's book is called The Trainable Cat. Coming up, we have 10 minutes left and five more questions. Can we do it? This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids. I'm Jane Lindholm. We've set a goal today of 10 questions in 20 minutes, so let's get right to it. Here's a question about books. Hi, my name is Molly. I am six years old. I live in Hydesburg, Vermont. My question is, what was the first book in the whole entire world? Hi, Molly. My name is Jessamine, and I'm a librarian who lives in Randall, Vermont. There are many answers to what was the first book, depending on how you define what a book is. I wasn't sure what the best answer was, so I contacted a librarian friend of mine, John Overholt, a curator of early modern books and manuscripts at Houghton Library at Harvard University. He said that the first book that has all the pieces that people probably think of when they think about books 
movable type, a book format with pages you can turn, is the Gutenberg Bible that was printed in 1450. However, there was printing in Asia for hundreds of years before that, as well as handwritten books for almost a thousand years before that. And we had scrolls before that and clay tablets before that. The Diamond Sutra is the earliest complete dated printed book. It was made from wooden blocks, printed one page at a time in 868, and then pasted together to form a scroll, which was over five meters long. You can look and learn more about it and see photos of it at the British Library's website. My name is Adeline. I am eight years old and I live in East Montpelier, Vermont. My question is, how do libraries get money when people just borrow books? Hi, Adeline. Libraries get money a lot of different ways, but mostly in Vermont. They're funded by the communities they serve, and people pay for libraries with their taxes. It can be a little different from town to town, but in many towns, the library is part of the town budget, just like the snow plows and the maintenance of the town hall and the roads, and maybe like the police and fire station if your town is big enough. Libraries also get additional money from the Vermont Department of Libraries, which funds specific things like summer reading programs and access to books for people who can't read printed books and may need books in Braille or audiobooks. Libraries also sometimes have endowments where people give money to the library or leave money to the library in their will, and the library keeps it in a bank account to save it for certain things like maintaining the building, for example. Lastly, libraries get grants from other organizations, from big government organizations like the Institute of Museum and Library Services, to smaller groups like the Awesome Foundation's Innovation and in Library Grants. Funding libraries is always a big question, and libraries often do a lot of different things to bring in money, so that basically when you borrow a book from the library, it doesn't cost you anything, and that way we can get the most stuff to the most people at the lowest cost. Thanks for asking. And thank you, Jessamine West, for answering. Hi, my name is Afik, and I'm from Palo Alto, California. And my question is, why do people love fidget spinners? Fidget spinners started out with a noble purpose, to help kids concentrate in school. Sitting at a desk and learning is hard, and some kids find it easier to concentrate and sit still if they're actually moving a little bit, maybe twirling a pencil or tapping their foot, playing with their sleeve. Is that you? For some people, that movement is a way for you to let out extra energy and let your brain focus on what you're trying to learn, like a multiplication lesson. For a long time, teachers have let kids have things like stress balls or silly putty to squeeze, or maybe teachers will let you sit on a ball instead of a chair. And within the last few years, toys like fidget spinners and fidget cubes have become popular. But some teachers say that kids are actually now more focused on learning cool fidget spinner tricks than on their schoolwork. Some teachers have even banned them from classrooms because they say they're too distracting. So I will leave it to you to decide. Is it a toy or is it a useful learning tool? That's something to think about during your school break. Question nine is about another toy. Hi, my name is Jovian. I am eight years old. I live in Falls Church, Virginia. And my question is, how come you can't get stuffed animals wet? Hmm, this sounds like a question that comes out of some direct experience, Jovian. Or maybe something you've been told by an adult? The truth is that most stuffed animals can get wet. 
If there are no electronic parts inside them, they're probably going to survive a dunk in the bathtub or being left out in the rain. But since they're usually made up of fabric and stuffing, they often soak up water like a sponge, and they can be kind of hard to get dry. So that might be why an adult would say, don't get your stuffed animal wet. And some stuffies are delicate, so they really wouldn't like to be put in the washing machine or the dryer especially the dryer. Sometimes dryers can shrink things or melt delicate plastic parts. So if you spilled something other than water on your stuffed animal, like milk from your cereal, it could be tricky to get your little pal clean. So stuffed animals are generally happier when they're warm and dry and loved. I'm out in a barnyard with some friendly swine to answer our tenth and final question of this episode. I am Yaiwa. I am four. I'm from Maine. My question is... Lina, say your question. How do, how do pigs poop? <laughs> Sometimes you guys ask questions that surprise even your parents. But it's a good question, Lila. Pigs poop the same way we do and for the same reasons. Pigs eat a lot of different things, and as their bodies process all the good stuff, the vitamins and nutrients they need to function, there's also some stuff that's not absorbed by the body. It's basically garbage, and your body needs to take out the trash. So after you or your favorite porcine, that means pig, friend, chew your food, It goes down into your stomach, where some acid helps break it up into even smaller pieces. And then the food travels through the intestines. The intestines are like a long, skinny tube that twists and turns inside your body. As the food goes through your intestines, those good nutrients are getting sucked out. And by the time the food gets pushed through the end of the intestines, what's left is poop. So just like you, the pig gets a sensation that it needs to go to the bathroom, and out comes the poop. One big difference, though, pigs don't bother finding a toilet. They just go wherever they please. Phew! We did it! We got through ten questions. Thank you so much to all of you who sent in questions. I really wish we had time and resources to answer all of your fantabulous questions. We've already gotten nearly a thousand since we started. Whoa! If you have a question, have an adult record it on a smartphone or some other recording device. Or if speaking is difficult for you, we're always happy to get an email. You can send your questions or your audio file to questions at butwhykids.org. Don't forget to tell us who you are, first names only please, where you live, and how old you are. And we will stay on the hunt for answers. But Why is produced by Melody Baudet and me, Jane Lindholm, for Vermont Public Radio. Our theme music is by Luke Reynolds. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode. Until then, stay curious. Yeah.